0: All right, so this is just a general outline of um, what we're gonna cover. Um, We'll talk about an introduction um, to just this whole concept of God in the workplace. We'll look at the origin of this dichotomy. When did this dichotomy emerge in terms of work is separate from your spirituality, your spiritual life, your relationship with God. Um, After we go through that, we'll start talking about integration. We'll look at a quote from Mark Green, um, kind of an evangelical theologian. We'll look at some quotes from different authors. We'll have a biblical discussion, and we'll just jump into principle, our first principle being that of being, that of being. So that's just a general outline of what we're going to be dealing with. So first and foremost, let's let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we'd like to thank you for the gift of life. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be a part of an army of youth that we believe God is doing everything in his power to make it rightly trained. Um, This seminar, Lord, is our our contribution to that. We pray, Lord, that you would bless every aspect. Um, We pray, Lord, that you would remove the mountains that get in the way of us being successful witnesses in the workplace, and also, Lord, that you would challenge us this morning on some of the most fundamental principles and ways by which we can impact the secular workplace as Seventh-day Adventist Christians and as Christians who are desiring to hasten the second coming of Jesus. We love you and we thank you um, for hearing and answering this prayer and we trust that we will learn more about Jesus and how we can follow his example in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, so let's look at uh, first session being Agents of Change. So here's a quote, um, says this. This is uh, from a fortune Fortune article in 2001 says this, why would we want to look for God in our work? Asks BEEJ co-founder Gregory F.A. Pierce, a publishing executive and the author of a new book called Spirituality at Work. The simple answer is most of us spend so much time working, it would be a shame if we couldn't find God there. A more complex answer is that there is a creative energy in work that is somehow tied to God's creative energy If we can understand that connection, perhaps we can use it to transform the workplace into something remarkable. Do you agree with him? Mm. Yes. We spend so much time working, it would be a shame, right? That we can't bring something that's so fundamental to our very nature and being and finding meaning in life. But it's like I'm gonna spend eight, to sometimes 10 to 12 hours a day doing that which creates and contributes no purpose to my existence. It's just a necessary evil. And that is essentially how work is viewed. The concept of God and work, faith in the workplace, however you want to term it, this is actually not a new concept. For a very long time, uh, probably back in 1930, there was an organization called the Christian Businessmen's Committee and what they did was they got together in the 1930s and they're like, you know what, we need to bring God into the workplace. So they created this organization, now it's an international organization. If you go to, I think if you type CBMC online or something like that in Google, it brings up their website. And these particular people are now building an international training center for faith in the workplace. I believe it's going on in India. So they're trying to build this place that they're saying from all over the world internationally, we're gonna bring people to train them how to impact their business. A training center, they're saying they're actually gonna do the groundbreaking happened I think back in August and they're actually gonna start in January 2010 to actually build this place to have it ready for 2011. So these are men from all over the world going back to the 1930s. Now in the 1950s we had an organization called Full Gospel Businessmen's Association. These individuals got together in the 1950s continuing to build on CBMC's kind of um, the, the hysteria so to speak that they created about this concept of God in the workplace and so they're saying look we're gonna take this full gospel concept now we need to be careful because although we may agree on about 98 to 99 of the points and reasons and nuts and bolts of integrating faith into the workplace with our evangelical brethren there's also some very slight differences they view work in terms of this concept that they call the anointing that is on your life. You ever heard that term before? You know, God has an anointing. You may never have heard this before, but some of you that may have, maybe you've crossed the Pentecostal movement or the Baptist movement. Um, It's spreading around, even into Catholicism and different denominations. But anyway, there's this concept that they believe in in, uh, the fact that in Ephesians chapter four, actually let's turn there, um, just to set the stage and then we'll continue on this introduction. Ephesians chapter 4, when you're there, say amen. Amen. Have mercy, okay. (laughs) If you need mercy, it's okay. But you know, come Sunday, there'll be no mercy. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Are we there? Okay. We use this text to talk about the validity of the gift of prophecy in the last days. This is one of the texts that we use as a a supportive concept in the New Testament for the prophetic gift continuing until the coming of Christ and the consummation of all things. It says, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this is Jesus ascending up on high. So the way that the evangelicals will interpret this text, they'll say when Jesus left to go up into heaven, this is what this text is talking about, the ascension, but it doesn't mention it so much in the book of Acts. So Paul is saying, hey, back when Jesus was ascending to go forth up into heaven, he says, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. Verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is from the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what we find here is that they say, okay, when Jesus went up, he gave gifts unto men. So you know how we do that with the spirit of prophecy. We say, we see, is Christianity coming to the unity of the faith? Yes or no? No, they have not, right? We still argue about whether you should be keeping the Sabbath, is the law done away with or not, the millennium, are you premillennial, amillennial, whatever the case may be. So as Christendom, we have not achieved a unity in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. People who reject the sanctuary message cannot fully understand Jesus and how salvation comes to him. Is that clear? So when we talk about people coming in, even from evangelical movements, they did not have a full understanding of the gospel. The sanctuary was representational of how Jesus deals with sin. So when we talk about our understanding with our evangelical brethren, and they look at this text, they use this text to show that apostleship is still a necessity as a gift in the church until we all come into the unity of the faith. Now, I would agree with them. The question is, how do we validate that a person actually has the gift of apostleship? So what they will say is, um, and I'm going to bring some books in the third session that I've been reading. They're probably the best I would recommend to you in terms of looking at reaching Christ, I mean, uh, sharing Christ in the workplace. But I'll share those in the third session so you can take a look at them, you know, order them, Amazon. Most of them are really cheap, $10 or less, but it's good quality material. But they'll say, you know, apostles in the workplace, there is an anointing on your life. You have authority as an apostle. This is part of the issue, this is part of the, the um, foundation of the concept of an apostle. They are the authority on doctrine. Paul teaches things, and so they don't necessarily come to things by studying, they come to them by revelation. God will reveal to them, as an apostle, this is what you should be teaching the church. So we continue in the book of Acts, it says, in the apostles' doctrine. Are you following me? So here they'll say, you're an apostle in the workplace, and so you have authority in the workplace. So now, if you're not too familiar with that, you may want to pop out at some point in time to Dr. Pippum's seminar to kind of deal with this whole prayer walks and all this other stuff and how these people believe you have authority. So you start claiming like zip codes and area codes. Lord, we're going to pray this zip code. And you come to church and say, did you pray your zip code? Like, did I pray my zip code? I'm like, 02139. Now you need to pray that zip code because God gave you that zip code and you have authority. So you walk through the streets claiming your authority, driving the devil out, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they take that same concept and they actually bring it into the workplace. Now, do you see how that could be a little dangerous? Yes or no? So, you come into the workplace, yeah, even though this sister is my boss, I have authority. the authority, right? Because I'm an apostle. Now, you follow how that could create some problems. <laughs> or let's say, you know, Katie and I were sitting in our cubicles, you know. She's a Christian, I'm a Christian, and we come on lunch. And I'm so excited as a seven-day Adventist to have another Christian at my job. Amen? You're like, praise God, someone I can talk to about Jesus openly. They're not going to look at me like, you know, we're not supposed to talk about this in the workplace. So Katie and I are talking. We go to lunch together, and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's such a blessing to be able to share Christ. And Katie's like, look, Sebastian, are you aware that you have authority? You don't have to sit down to this. You know, you can pray this into existence. You can pray that raise. You can do this because you have authority from God. There's an anointing on your life. That sounds very empowering, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, Katie starts puffing me up. <laughs> Next time you know, I'm buying into this anointing stuff. And then we're losing the meekness and the humility of Jesus' method in reaching. It's not about ascending in the workplace. Mm-hmm. He that will be great, let him be your servant. Are you, are you following that? So they take the whole concept that God gives authority to men. The authority does not come within me. It's not invested in me. The authority is in my submission to God. Are you following that? So this concept of the apostleship, they use this whole concept to show that we need to be apostles, quotation marks, in the workplace. And so their approach to reaching out to the workplace is like, yes, we need to be doing this, but the full gospel brethren, they're the ones who are kind of beginning to bring this concept into God, faith, and spirituality in the workplace. In the workplace. So let's look at another quote from this Fortune, um, Fortune article, 2001. This is what they say. A conference at the business school of Santa Clara University, a Jesuit institution in Silicon Valley, begins with the chime of a Tibetan bull a reading from the Sufi mystic Rumi, and a few moments of silent meditation. Executives, academics, and theologians then discuss such topics as how to find one's true calling. There were two things I thought I'd never see in my life, says Andre Delbeck, a management professor and organizer of the event, the fall of the Russian Empire, and God being spoken about at a business school. Let me tell you something, I, was, uh, I studied business in college. And my, I studied finance and entrepreneurship. When I went into uh, my finance major, my major courses, one of my professors, his name was Ramesh Garg, he's a um, phenomenal professor from the late 70s, 80s. He like, did brilliant work in finance. I mean, the guy is a genius, literally. And so he decided, you know, I'm just gonna go into teaching. So as a result of this, he comes into the classroom one day and so, uh, he and I had a discussion, which I'm gonna talk about in the, next sec- in the next seminar, in terms of called Reaching Here by Going There. So I was going to preach at Indiana University, and so while I was going, I said, hey, Professor, I have to leave on Thursday um, to go because you know, I have to speak Friday, et cetera, et cetera, so I'm gonna miss class. But I just wanted to get you know some idea of the notes, what I need to read in the chapter. So he says, okay, meet me in my office after class. <laughs> I go to his office. We start talking, he says, okay, where are you going? going to Indiana University. Okay, what are you going to be talking about? And you know how we do, right? We're like, well, you know, I'm giving some speeches on things like morality, (laughs) um, you know, positive encouragement for young people. And uh, their theme that they had chosen that that year was finding your identity in the Word of God. So I was like, yeah, um, those are the general things, identity, stuff like that. And he says, really, well, I mean, like, what do you mean, like, you're going to talk about this? Like, identity, like, how are you going to approach this? Now, you can see, right, this happens to us because we're so scared to witness. It's like the Lord is, like, choking it out of us. Can you just tell them about Jesus? Now, that'll be probably my sermon on Sabbath morning. But this whole concept of, like, I'm talking, so eventually I'm like, all right, fine. I'm just going to open Pandora's box. So I'm like, well, I'm going to be talking about this from the Bible. He's like, oh, the Bible. He's like, so you believe it's the Word of God? I'm like, I do believe it's the Word of God. So our discussion, rather than being a five minute can I get the notes, the presentation, I ended up talking for an hour about what I was gonna be presenting. I basically gave him all five of my sermons. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm telling the story for a reason. So I'll cut it short, I'll deal with that more in the second session. So when I came, when I came back to uh, the classroom after being at Indiana University a week later, we were doing a real estate finance class. This was right when the real estate industry was dropping. And so while it was dropping, he comes to class and we're talking about how these, dro- these, these uh, loan officers, which I was kind of studying to become a loan officer, and so they were like, yeah, this loan officer was telling us about these drug dealer loans, where they give loans to people with no information. If you have the down payment, you get the loan. So they call them drug dealer loans. We don't know where you came from, you just rolled in with $20,000 cash, here's a loan. So I'm like, you know, so we start talking about, is this ethical, they're they're sitting down with people as finance, and we're calculating your finances, and I can look at your finances and tell you you cannot afford a $100,000 house. If your mother dies, if you get really sick, if you have a baby, your finances are going to go down, you're not going to be able to mortgage, then your interest rate's going to zip up, and you're going to end up paying for this house six, seven times over what you originally signed for. I know that, but as a loan officer and a financial individual, I won't tell you that because I want you to get the loan. So as we're discussing this, the classroom's going back and forth, and he says, you know, people start getting disruptive. And he says, hey, hey, we need to settle down. This classroom is a temple of learning, right? This is a place of worship. Everyone just kinda jumps back, what did he just say? <laughs> He's like, this is a place, this is a sacred place. This is a temple of learning. And everyone, you can imagine, right, the student. this is a secular university. So the students are like, this brother's lost his mind. like, this is not a place of worship, this is not a temple of learning. And so he goes and he says, look, we're discussing moral issues, this involves people's deep down, what they consider to be valuable, what they consider to be important, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes, well, you know, we can ask Sebastian. He talks about morality all the time. (laughs) Everyone turns, really? (laughs) Yeah, he just traveled to Indiana University. So like, Sebastian, what do you think about this issue? So what I said was, you know, in the Bible it says that all, there are things that may be lawful, but they're not always expedient. So we don't believe that we should do things because they are not against the law. We believe we should do things because they're morally right or they're morally wrong, based upon the law of God. Right? So as I explain this in the classroom, you know, and there's many other things that came up later on, but I'm just using this point to discuss this whole fact that These two things that is happening in the business schools because there's this return to the importance of ethics because of Enron, the workplace is becoming very important to discuss ethics, and therefore, this creates a window. This creates a window for faith because we understand we derive our ethics, what we believe to be right and wrong, from the Word of God. If that's clear, let's say amen. Amen. All right, a couple more quotes. At a church retreat near San Antonio... Uh, Parishioners listen to the message of everyday Christianity delivered by David Miller, a former IBM executive and investment banker who now leads a faith in the workplace group called the Avoda Institute. Miller, 44 years old, left business to study at Princeton Theological Seminary, not to flee corporate America, but to help knit closer ties between business and religion. People often talk about the sacred-secular divide, he says. But my faith tells me that God is found in earth, and rocks, and buildings, and institutions, and yes, in the world, business world. So this guy, this concept of evoda, we'll talk about this later, but that's the Hebrew word for work. It's also the Hebrew word for worship. So this whole concept, when we talk about this integration, in pretty much the next session, part of this session, when we talk about integrating faith and work, the biblical model versus what we'll talk about, the Greek model, is that this idea in the Hebrew mind was that work was worship. So because of that, he uses the same word. So that same word where it says they came up into the temple and they worship, that's the same word. As it says, okay, and he wrought work on the wheel or something like that, it's avoda. So as a result of this, they say in the Hebrew concept, which obviously we derive from, because these people call themselves New Testament Christians until it comes to principles like these, and then we want to draw from the Old Testament and be like, oh, see, see, it's in the Hebrew, but they don't necessarily subscribe to it. They just believe there's lessons to be learned. But nevertheless, there's a whole organization called the Voda named after this concept. Your work is worship to God. Your work is worship to God. Now, notice some interesting statistics about this. Depending on how the question is asked, as many as 95% of Americans say they believe in God, in much of Western Europe, the figure is closer to 50%. The Princeton Religious Research Index, which has tracked the strength of organized religion in America since World War II, reports a sharp increase in religious beliefs and practices since the mid-1990s. When the Gallup Poll asked Americans in 1999 if they felt a need to experience spiritual growth, 78% said yes, up from 20% in 1994. Nearly half said they had occasion to talk about their faith in the workplace in the past 24 hours. Think about that. Sales of Bibles and prayer books, inspirational volumes, and books about philosophy and Eastern religions are growing faster than any other category. Before I was an Adventist, I was actually, I was involved in hip-hop music. And I remember, um, you know, I had had a favorite artist. I'm not going to say his name, one of my favorite artists. And I remember at the end of his CD, he had this little song that was like a prayer, right? He's praying to God at the end of the CD. And I remember putting the CD in, and I was not anywhere near anything religious. But I remember listening, I'm like, this brother has nerve to put a prayer on the CD after the song before this was about how he's gonna break up in your house and rape your daughter and put her in the trunk, you know, do all this crazy stuff. And so I remember me and my friends were like, yo, man, this is crazy. So we're talking to this producer and he said, he sat us down, we're making this song in the studio and he said, look, let me tell you something. There's one genre of music whose sales is always increasing. It's Christian music. If you can appeal to Christians, you'll always have sales. He says, so this guy, although he made an entire hip hop CD, he purposely did one song as a prayer. Because you know what's going to happen with the 15 year old girl, right? Who comes home, her mom's like, What kind of mess are you listening to? And her mom's going to like, But bomb, but, no, he has a prayer at the end of his CD. And he's rapping the prayer to God. Go figure. Well, this whole thing is the same sense. These books about philosophy, Eastern religions are growing faster than any other category with the market expanding, notice this, from 1.69 billion to 2.24 billion in five years. So you're getting close to almost doubling the thing. According to the Book Industry Study Group, literally hundreds of those titles address spirituality at work from Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, and non-denominational perspectives. There are 280 books that come out a year about faith in the workplace. And I bet most of us probably couldn't name 20 or 30 of them. We couldn't name them. So what this tells me is that as a church that believes in hastening Jesus' coming and the fact that we are to witness where we are, we are starving for literature. Mm. So it's not just that, to me, I don't want to encourage you in the seminar only to have success in terms of you reaching your co-workers and being a blessing at work, but I also want to challenge you guys to record your experiences Learn lessons and write them down, so we can have Adventist resources to help other people in the workplace. See, here's here's why I'm interested in this. I made this comment when I announced the seminar. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door, you know, the walls in Wittenberg, whatever. One of his theses was that the laity needed to be abolished, not the priesthood. He wasn't against the priesthood. Martin Luther understood, based on 1 Peter 2, 9, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Revelation 1, 7, God has made us both kings, or queens, and priests. So as a result of this, Martin Luther said, where do we get this concept of the laity? It's not in the Bible. So as a result of that, his desire was to abolish the laity. This concept that certain people are in ministry, certain people study the Bible, certain people focus on spiritual things, and we all have to just go into the secular realm and depend upon a good preacher, good pastor, good elders to keep us strong spiritually in the workplace. Now, when I say it out loud, we all, we all nod like we don't agree with that, right? But the reality is that is what it is right now. That's exactly how we think. Man, the pastor didn't preach nothing this week. Rather than, Pastor, 20 hands go up because we have testimonies. I got a co-worker here from church. Mm. Now, whether the pastor preaches a weak sermon or a powerful sermon, it ain't going to matter to you. Right? Because your co-worker is sitting on the pew. Your only concern is just don't preach error. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) That's your concern. So in this sense, we as a church really need to be cultivating individuals who are writers, thinkers, powerful experiences to really impact this whole, this whole concept. Here's one last perspective on interest. People who want to mix God and business are rebels on several fronts. This is what Fortune says, not even eight years ago. They reject the centuries-old American conviction that spirituality is a private matter. If you've ever called Porter before, you probably heard that before. My faith is private. People get angry at you and slam the door because as soon as you bring up, oh, Jesus, you know, beautiful, bright nature pictures, they're like, what did you just say? Oh, this takes 10 steps on how to have a close relationship with Jesus? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, that's a private matter. I work through my church, that's what they say. It's a private matter. So for us, that's, that is actually a rebel concept. They challenge religious thinkers who disdain business as an inherently impure pursuit. Did you know that? It's inherently impure. The great Harvard theologian, Paul Tillich once wrote, any serious Christian must be a socialist. I mean, we don't agree with that, so <laughs> let's just be clear. <laughs> they disagree with business people who say that religion is unavoidably divisive. Most of all, they refuse to bow to the all too common notion that much of the work done in corporate America must be routine, dull, and meaningless. They want and expect more. They want and expect more. Now, let's talk about where this dichotomy came from. So I'm gonna see if I can blow this up for you guys. can read this with me. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, so notice here, where did this dichotomy come from? This origin of this dichotomy between work and God. First of all, notice, it started with Homer, Thales, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, this concept of dualism. You guys ever heard of anthropological dualism? Maybe. It's something we deal with probably in evangelism in terms of uh, the immortality of the soul. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But in the Greeks they believe in this concept of dualism. The idea of higher and lower planes of ideas and activities. And each area being named form and matter respectively. So they would say that things that are higher ideas would be form and things that are lower they would be matter. Anything physical. We also dealt with this in the biblical times with the people called the Gnostics. Maybe you heard of them. Comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, or to know, gnosko. So this is where we say like an agnostic is a person who says, I don't know, right? From gnosko. This is also where we get the Latin for ignoramus, too. (laughs) A person who doesn't know. (laughs) So this is where it started with the Greeks. They believe in this duality. Then it goes down to the 5th century to Augustine. And Augustine, who's in the church, he likes to merge Platonic thought into a Christian framework. He wants to take duality and make it Christian. So he separates it as the contemplative life and the active life. So the things that are more inert, spiritual, you know, this monks go be in the woods and meditate for hours and hours and hours. But the people had to go to work nine to five, you know, milking cows or cutting wood or being a carpenter. He says that's the active life and therefore that's a negative. But it gets even worse. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he calls them grace and nature. And nature is that which requires no revelation, thus work would fall under the nature section. Now, is that true? Does work require no revelation? It does, right? How many of you guys think work requires no revelation from God? Okay. Okay. Why is that? The, why is it that we be, we don't believe that? Any ideas? Because that causes a certain thing. Yes, because we believe God has a specific purpose, right? A specific work for us to do. Any other reason? Do we ever find God in the Bible anointing people for specific work? Yes. That is not just go out and minister. Give me one, place. David. David to do what? King, right? Any other places? Yes. Samson. Any other places? Paul, Samuel, Esther, Noah. Yes. So you have all these individuals throughout the Bible. One of my favorites is dealing with Bezalel, right? The building of the temple. The Spirit gave him wisdom, right? In Exodus 35. So the Spirit of God is not just giving you wisdom in order to preach. It also gives people wisdom to build the sanctuary for God. So it made him a good carpenter. So you have to take this concept that we don't believe that number one in the actual work itself. God can give you revelation. There's a gentleman. Um, we had a, a young professionals meeting earlier this year with for Campus Ministries, and I remember this gentleman came to preach. I think he's at Georgetown University. I just his name is escaping my mind right now. Huh? Yes, Dr. Brown. He was talking about how he was praying one day and God gave him an idea for a formula. A patent that he patented and now is like, you know, it's blown up in neuroscience and all this other stuff in his prayer time. Now for me, I listen to that and we're like, wow, that's powerful. No, 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 it's supposed to be regular for us. Mm -hmm. Are you following me? God is very much a part of your work. You can get on your knees and pray for creativity if you're a writer. You can get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm a nurse, I want this person to be healed. You can do that. And the whole thing is bringing God into this immediately channels so much depth and purpose to your work. So much depth and purpose. But this is where Thomas Aquinas, it's almost dying. And then it ends with the pietistic movement in the 17th century. And I want to show you this quote by Francis Schaeffer. And this is how he, um, this is how he uh, puts it in a Christian manifesto. Pietism began as a healthy protest against formalism and a too abstract Christianity, but it had a deficient Platonic spirituality. It was Platonic in the sense that Pietism made a sharp division between the spiritual and the material, world giving little or no importance to the material world. The totality of human existence was not afforded a proper place, Christianity and spirituality were shut up to a small, isolated part of life. Do you not see that in America now? This is in America in the 17th century. Pietistic movement. Now it was a powerful movement. They believed that they were finishing the Reformation. This was one of their goals as a movement. But they still put spirituality in that private sector. Religion is private to you. You don't bring that into the workplace. You don't bring that out into the public. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Even though we'll put up Christmas lights and all these different things. But this is not how we do it. How am I doing on time? Fifteen minutes? Okay. All right, so let's talk about a little bit of this integration concept. Let's look at uh, this quote from Mark Green. This is what he says. Work is ordained by God, and it should be dedicated to God. The Hebrew word for work is avoda, the same as the word for worship. Service captures the flavor best. Work is a seven-letter word, service to God and people. And though I would lose my job if I built a theology on, he says, um, on the basis of that observation alone, we can see elsewhere in Scripture that work is a part of everything we do to the glory of God. For God, God, work is part of our worship. It is part of our service to Him. Mm amen Amen. so I want you to think about this for a minute do you view your work as worship do you view your work as worship to God who is really your boss now pause for a moment here if my work is worship let's go back is God particular about worship we have an entire book yeah Leviticus, you know what happens if you don't follow the strict guidelines? What happens? Ask Cain. Yeah? He was a tiller of the ground, and he brought the best of his work to God. I'm going to end on this story between Cain and Abel, just to conclude this session. We'll go into more things in the next session. But I want to look at this. Go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Are you there? Amen. Amen? All right. Genesis chapter 4. Now I want you to notice this. It says here, after Cain and Abel were born, Genesis chapter 4 and verse, verse 2. And she again bare his son Abel, and Abel was a keeper of what? And Cain was a tiller of the ground. He had work, yeah? Now, I don't have time to get all into this just because of the shortness of time. But if I had time, I would show you that work was ordained by God, even in perfection. Mm-hmm. And God expected man to be a co-worker with him. When sin came into the world, God cursed the ground. He did not curse the task of tilling the soil. Are you with me? He says, now, in the sweat of your brow, right, you will eat of the earth, your work. But he didn't curse the work. He cursed the ground, the environment of work. So what we see in Genesis is that sin has affected the environment where we work. It does not... It does not have a curse on the work itself. That's not what he pronounced a curse on. So we find here in Genesis 4 that Abel had one particular occupation. Cain had another occupation. Now what happens is this in verse 3. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now isn't that interesting? He happens to be a tiller of the ground. He brings the fruit of the So in essence, he's taking the fruits of his work and he's bringing it before God. Yes? Abel comes. He also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Verse 5. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Now what does that question imply? When God says, if thou doest not well, shalt thou not be accepted, what is the implication of that question? What is he assuming? Something's not perfect. What is he assuming about what Cain knows? Cain knows what is? well, right? He knows what's acceptable to God. So this question betrays us something that's not inherent in the story, but between the lines, Cain knew what he was supposed to bring to God. Yes? Now, I want you to follow this. Go to Hebrews 11. We're going to put pieces together. Two more texts. We're going to look at Hebrews 11 and 1 John. So Hebrews 11. When you're there, say amen. Okay. Okay. Hebrews 11. This is what the Bible says, verse 4. The first person mentioned in the hall of faith is Abel. Mm. By faith, Abel offered unto God a what? More excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain. Now, the word more excellent means that there was a comparison, right? Yes? More excellent than Cain. So that means Cain's sacrifice was excellent, right? Abel's was? more excellent so what that means is Abel and Cain right bring their offerings to God and God says this one is more excellent God wants the highest standard of excellence in what you bring to him but here's the issue here Cain's sacrifice was excellent but how did Abel bring something better than Cain what are the first two words by faith he did that. It didn't say by his prowess or his wisdom. It didn't say by his PhD. It didn't say by his 25 years experience with the company. By faith. So here we, have a, here we have an issue, friends. Two men come before God. Now, we know, and all of us who work in the working world, there are some people in the secular world who are not Christians who do better work than us. Yes, their work is excellent. I've worked in nonprofit work, and there are people there doing great humanitarian work who are not Christians at all by any stretch of the imagination. After they go out and feed the homeless, they go back and have beers. Hmm. The same people. Now, for me, that's just mind boggling. <laughs> but the point is, I sit and watch them, and this girl, she can organize anything. You're like, hey, where are you going tomorrow? Oh, I have to do this, da da da. I'm kind of confused. She can organize your life. Five minutes. <laughs> That's just how good she is. But she'll leave, go have a cigarette, go to a bar, drink all night with her friends. So now the question is, is her work acceptable to God? If that's her worship, right? So the question is, is it enough to be excellent? Now I'm all for excellence in the workplace. But my suspicion is many of us come before God like Cain. If work is worship, yes, it's not that you have different worships before God. If work is worship, then your entire life is a life of worship. Everything you do is supposed to be to the glory of God. So what that means is if you bring excellent work, academic, professional, whatever work, and then at the same token, you're out here drinking at the bar violating the commandments of God, Breaking the Sabbath, your whole offering is rejected. It's not accepted before God. So while my argument is for work, to be worship, and therefore it must be particular, God says, bring me a lamb without spot or blemish. That's the kind of worship I desire. Don't bring me the broke down lamb. Don't bring me, oh yeah, I got off 10 minutes early, didn't finish my tasks, my inbox is piling up. See, I'm getting convicted. My desk is a mess right now. (laughs) Don't bring me this. But even if your work was perfect and in order before God, there's more that he wants. This is the last text for today. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Are we there? Amen. Amen. All right, First John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. He was of the what? Wicked. You know he can be of the wicked one doing excellent work. Now, was Cain bringing worship to God? But he was of the wicked one. That's scary, right? You're going to church with people. of the wicked one may not even know not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother and notice the question the Bible asks and wherefore slew he him because his own works were evil and his brothers were now think about that Cain's work was excellent but it was evil It was excellent, but it was evil. Our struggle in the church is that our work is righteous, but it's not excellent. Think about it for a second. If we viewed our jobs as worship, we function and we focus a lot on living before God without blot, without blemish. Do we not? We come before He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Lord, I want to be clean in your sight, whiter than snow, Lord, whiter than snow. Jesus paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain. We want to be clean before the eyes of God. Yet when we go to work, God says, Now how can you be focusing on making sure you're stopping to commit this sin? But we recognize that righteousness is not just withdrawal from evil. It is also active engagement in righteousness. Christ-likeness. And now, the question you ask, and this leads me as my ending comment that will transition us into the next session. If Jesus was working at your job, would the approval rating be the same? Would your appraisal be the same? Because Jesus is the example of righteousness. He worked at a carpenter shop for a long time, Jesus had tenure. He probably had retirement benefits if he wanted to. <laughs> What would be the answer to that question? Because Jesus believed as we ought to believe. And as the Hebrews understood, evoda, work is worship to God. And I must be a carpenter as if I'm bringing an offering. Make sure every table I lay off this bench, if it were inspected by the all-seeing almighty God, he would say this is a perfect table, as much as you could produce. As much as you could produce. Um, I want to have a closing prayer. Are we going to do any questions or just break? Let's break. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and stand for prayer. I've been sitting for a while. Heavenly Father, we'd like to thank you, Lord, for the blessing and the power of this idea of faith in, in, faith in, in, our, in our workplace. We have seen today, Lord, the importance. And the historical background to why we need to be agents of change in the workplace and where that begins is us integrating our lives in such a way that work is seen as worship before you. Lord we're not seeking to come under this false guise of authority and of an anointing that most of us don't even really understand but we believe that as we go into these places God seeks to use us powerfully and that we struggle as a church in the workplace not so much with ensuring that we become righteous before the eyes of God, but, because, but with the fact that our work is not excellent. We pray that you'll teach us, Lord, and give us that spirit that Jesus had when he approached his carpenter's bench. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.